And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I met Mike McFall on an Obama campaign plane in 2007, shortly after he had joined as an advisor to Senator Obama on Russia and national security issues. Already one of America's noted Russia scholars at Stanford, uh, Mike came into the administration to work in the National Security Council and ultimately became our ambassador to Russia, uh, where he had a stormy tenure. He just released a great new book called From Cold War to Hot Peace, tracing America's freighted relationship with Vladimir Putin and Russia. And he came by the Institute of Politics to talk about it, where we sat down for this conversation. Mike McFall, it's really good to see you. Uh, we spent some good time together. We did. Uh, over the years, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But the, one of the joys of doing this is I learn even about old friends more than I knew before. And I learned about uh, your upbringing in Montana, mm-hmm. which is not exactly the profile of a U.S. <laughs> ambassador uh, to yeah, Russia. That's so for sure. So t- talk a little bit about that, growing up in Montana and your folks. Well, I grew up in Montana my whole life until I went to school as a 17-year-old kid at Stanford. Uh my dad was a country western musician. Uh, my and that's, you know, if you know anything about the business, that means sometimes you're a country western musician and sometimes you're not working. Uh, but he, was, what did he play? Well, he was a school teacher originally, right? He was this great musician mm-hmm. kid from Wisconsin. What do you do with a degree in music? You become a teacher. Ended up in Glasgow, Montana, which is really on the edge of America. Yeah, it's um, right on the Canadian. Yeah, up there, more ICBMs probably than people. Um, (laughs) And then just one day, he wanted to go on the road. He was sick and tired of teaching. He wanted to play for a living. So his instrument was the saxophone. His music of choice was jazz. But there's not a lot of jazz uh, gigs in Montana or the greater uh, Northwest. So over the years, he, he can play anything and everything. And he adapted to uh, the circumstances. And you you had four uh, siblings? Yep, still do. And uh, I was the oldest. And, still am. And uh, how, did, how did you react to his being on the road all the time? Well, that's a complicated question, and, and it's actually kind hey, of how— You want easy questions, you know, yeah, yeah, go yeah. on Pod Save America. <laughs> <laughs> I just did Vitor's Pod Save the World the other day. I love those guys. Uh, you know they're all my guys. I know. They're they're your team. And they're doing great stuff. And allegedly that one last week, because we did Russia, but the Rhodes also did Iran, was his uh, the most downloaded pod that he's ever done for Pod Save the World. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, yeah, my dad was gone. So in a way, I had to, like, be the father figure. Uh, Were you the on. oldest? I was the oldest because mm-hmm. um, he was gone a lot. Um, and the irony of his story of trying to get a job and trying to get us into college actually is the moment that gets me involved in Russia because, you know, I was born in Glasgow, but I grew up in Butte. And if you know anything about Montana, Butte's a pretty rough and tumble place. It's a mining town. Uh, you know, I used to get 
beaten up. I was going to say I used to get in fights. That would be incorrect. I used to get beaten up uh, from time to time. Not a very intellectual place. Uh, and I was a jock then, you know, you know, struggling to keep my place. You're on a pugnacious the guy, so this well, doesn't entirely, there you go. That, that, entirely shock that, me. That definitely came from that time. But my junior year of high school, uh, five kids, not a lot of money. How are we going to get these kids through college? Um, we moved to Bozeman, which is only 90 miles down the road, but Butte to Bozeman, it's like going from a tough mining town to the college town. And my dad got a, a permanent job, or so we thought, at the Ramada Inn uh, in Bozeman, Montana, the, the house band, right? Tuesdays through Saturdays, 9, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. I used to sit in with him from time to time. Where did you play? play with him? Uh, with him, usually keyboards. Mm -hmm. And I had a brother that played bass. And we had a tradition of trying to play with him over new, on New Year's. So that was always oh, fun. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, we had a good time with that. Um, uh, we moved there my junior year, and uh, December they were fired. Uh, and he never played in Bozeman again. He went on the road uh, until he retired, uh, playing in all kinds of places. But that move was critical to my education and my interest in Russia because, you know, I was a kid. I didn't like writing. I didn't like reading. I'm not sure I'd have read a novel up to that point in my hmm. life. Uh, and I was looking for the easiest way to get an A in English because I hated English at the time. And my neighbor, uh, Bridie Sullivan, she said, the easiest way, the Mickey Mouse course to get an A is debate class. Uh, and so I took, I signed up for the debate class. And uh, eventually, um, uh, Mr. Adams uh, was his name. He's passed away. He convinced me to join the debate team, right? Uh, and the topic that year was how to improve U.S. trade policy. And so my partner and I, we're new, right? We're rookies or whatever you're called. We ran this squirrely case, like an obscure case, which was to repeal the Jackson-Vanek yeah, Amendment. Yeah, Jackson-Vanek. You remember yeah. from the 1974 that Trade That was Act. big. Well, that was a big thing. And we ran this case. Uh, uh, by the way, my uh, debate partner is now Senator Danes uh, yes, from Montana. Yes, Steve Danes. So we were pretty good. Um and that's how I got interested in Russia, because of the debate class and uh, ended up, you know, sparking my interest Yeah, back, you know, back in Montana. I don't know how many people that I've spoken with you know, that have like a Mr. Adams in their past who made, you know, took them under their wing and yes. made a fateful, a, a fateful suggestion. He and, did that. And I remember the day we were debating at some tournament and I was a pretty good runner back then, David. And, uh, you know, I set records even in like a ninth grade. And he said, you to had me, blown your knee out by the time I read. Well, that's true. So. I'm still I'm still playing, though. <laughs> I, I'm st I still go on to the Stanford courts with my sons and get the crap beat out of me. Uh, but uh, he said to me something kind of profound. He said, isn't it great to be able to use your brain to do something instead of just running around that stupid track. And that kind of lingered with me and, you know, helped me go to college and, you know, get in a different track than just trying to be a, um, you know, kind of third-rate athlete. Now, your mom worked at Montana State. She didn't, yeah. And so uh, how'd you end up at She Stan had a steady job. That was good. We yeah, especially, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we needed that. Uh, now, how did you get to uh, to Stanford? 
pretty fluky thing. So junior year, we moved to Montana, Bozeman. It's the plan for us to all go to Montana State, which right. is the university there, so that we could live at home. That's the way my parents were going to provide money for us, you know, support for us to go to school. Uh, my junior year, though, I, had, I was in chemistry, and my partner was a guy named Steve Smith. And every day we would go Who's in. Who's not a high office holder now, right? He's not a high office okay. holder. He's an artist. I thought he was in U- just more name dropping. No, no, no. Here. He's an artist in uh, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Steve, he was worldly because he'd lived in California before. And he kept every day, he would say, you, we got to get out of Montana, this parochial backwards place. You got to go abroad, you know, over, I'm not, that's not the right word. You got to go out of state uh, to see the world for college. And one day we walked down to the, you know, the office where they had all these applications. And uh, he handed me the Stanford one. And I'm looking at the CA and I can't figure out where that is because I just assumed all the elite schools were in the East, like Harvard and Stanford. And is that Connecticut? You know, what Canada, is that? Canada, yes. And uh, that was, you know, that's the day I figured out I was in California, first of all. And then I applied and I got in. I was, I mean, my mom didn't want me to go. She thought a bunch of hippies and... You know, strange people are from California. That's what people And she thought. wasn't wrong. I mean, let's be honest about <laughs> there, that. There's a lot of strange people in California. Uh, I got into a college, uh, McAllister College in Minnesota. Yeah. and uh, You must have been a pretty good student for all yeah. of your... This can't just be because you got the A in debate. I, I mean, I was a good student, but uh, I think you'd be shocked if you saw my SAT scores. I was not an educated student. I remember when the uh, Republicans were demanding your college transcripts. <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, but I did a lot of things, you know. I was like the student body president. I was an active guy mm-hmm. and active in politics and, you know, did like Youth Ledge and United Nations. Uh, I didn't get into Harvard. Uh, I remember that. But I got into McAllister. I wanted to go there. Um, and it was just a simple decision. The financial aid package yeah. from Stanford was thousands, not, not thousands, tens of thousands of dollars more attractive. And I didn't know anything about the place, to be honest, but my parental contribution for my freshman year was $400. Uh, and that was the decision maker. And yeah. so that's how I ended up at Stanford. Where you remain Thank, uh, to this I, day. Yeah, it's... Um, Grateful to have. I've looped out. You know, I've left seven or eight times, but I always and they come take back. you back. I always the come back. Um, uh, and it, and at Stanford, you you really began to pursue this interest in Russia. Yeah, well, and, that that was right as Ronald Reagan came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was there fall of eighty one. Uh, he was saying some pretty scary things uh, about confrontation, and I already had this interest from. Uh, uh, Montana, but I showed up there uh, in fall quarter of my freshman year. I took first year Russian and poli sci 35, how nations deal with each other. And my proposition was that if we could just get to know the Soviets, that's what we called them back then, we could reduce tensions. That was my theory. That was my theory of diplomacy as a 17 year old kid. And two years later, I'd never been abroad before, uh, but uh, I got onto a program to study at Leningrad State University. 
Uh, imagine that call, by the way, to my mother, who thought that California was a communist country uh, with a bunch of hippies. And then it's like, hey, mom, I'm going to the evil empire uh, for the summer. Um, she wasn't a big enthusiast of that, but but it all worked out. And I had a, you know, really... What, and what, what, what were your impressions of... Uh, Leningrad, yeah. 1983? Definitely that thing. They were not as different from us as I had been told. And, um, you know, uh, I didn't experience the full oppression of communism then. That happened with later years. But that year was White Nights, Leningrad, June, July, uh, first time abroad, experiencing new cultures, uh, a really interesting group of Americans that were there. And so all of those factors contributed to this idea that this wasn't so bad. Uh, and they did do some things right, I thought. Um, and, you know, I met people who were just like me. I mean, I remember the first time I met this guy. Uh, I later understood why I met him. I didn't know it at the time. I met him because he was working on the black market, but he treated me like a friendly person and Americans, and, and he was really into the doors, mm -hmm. and he was like my age, and it's like, we're, we got way more in common with these people than uh, we have our differences. At least that was my first naive impression. You've you've actually accumulated accumulated a lot of friends and relationships uh, over the years. Do you still have friends from that first uh, that first journey as a as a college student? Yes, uh, I have one Russian friend from that period. Mm -hmm. um, most of them faded away. Uh, you know, that was a long time ago. Uh, but when I was named ambassador, he found me again. Uh, and, you know, we've been communicating ever since. So, some American friends, too, by the way. The, in fact, and the great thing of this book tour, by the way, David, is people just come out of the woodwork you haven't seen mm -hmm. forever. Uh, I just gave a talk at uh, NYU last week, and somebody from that trip who I literally had not seen for 35 years came to my talk, and it was great to see him again. You, can't, you went back two years later, yeah. uh, this time to Moscow, uh, to the State Institute, of Russian language. Um, You've done your homework. Wow. That was a... Imena Puchkina, if you want to say it in <laughs> Russian. Uh, and there you became more active. Yes. Uh, and probably, if I did have Putin's file here, uh, it may go back to that... Probably. ...to that period. Why? Yeah. Well, so two things had changed. Uh, one... Uh, I was now a fourth-year Russian student as opposed to a second year, so my language was better. I could interact with uh, Russians easier. Two, I got more into the fabric of that society. I, you know, I, I started meeting with uh, refusniki, is what they were called back then, Jewish uh, mm -hmm. people that uh, were denied the right to immigrate. Uh, I started meeting with some more um, uh, dissident types. Uh, one person who later who I'm still in touch with, by the way, uh, who was very interested in uh, the rebirth of the Christian uh, Russian Orthodox Church, independent from the Soviets. He later became a priest after the collapse of communism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I met some, I got into this weird group. I met some of these Russian uh, elites uh, through my association with Moscow State University. Uh, my best friend, in fact, uh, that year was a guy from Ghana, 
he was my hallmate, and uh, he had been there for several years, which was great because it was really hard to buy food and just the basics of getting along. I, I lost like 25 pounds uh, in that semester, and he took me under his wing. But so he knew he was connected to. Uh, uh, you know, the International Society. I, I went to a lot of African National Liberation Day <laughs> events. Uh, and, and they then were connected to these communist elites. And so I even saw a side of that part of the society, that privileged society that I didn't see in Leningrad. And that's when I, I got a better appreciation for, you know, uh, why this system was evil and and uh, was not a fair society in the way that I used to think about it a couple of years earlier. So you were handing out leaflets at the time or pamphlets on how to run for office in Russian? Well, that came a little later. That came yes, a little you. later, yeah. Uh, that was So that was my next big time living there. It was in 1991. Um, I go back to Moscow State University. So you're right, same university. I'm there to finish my PhD, my DPhil at Oxford, which is about national liberation movements in mm -hmm. Southern Africa. Yeah. Kind of from that time in 85. That's probably also in Putin's file. That I know is in Putin's file. Yes. I'll tell you why I know it for a fact. Uh, but I had been bouncing back and forth. I went back in 88. Uh, I gave this talk at the African Institute because I'm trying to research back then how the Soviets are supporting revolutionaries in Southern Africa, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, this was a real turning point in my life. Uh, I go back in the spring of 1988. I meet some, I met the, uh, somebody who worked on Africa and they said, oh, you should come give a talk. So I gave a talk in my broken Russian and all my mumbo jumbo poli sci jargon. <laughs> uh, I'm sure nobody understood a word I was saying. I'm sure they all thought mumbo I mumbo jumbo jargon in, in, in broken Russian has to be yes. hard to take. Yeah, independent variable, dependent variable, <laughs> causal inference, all that stuff. I, and to the political scientists out there, I love political science. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's a great profession. I'm glad to be part of it. Um, you know, I gave the talk. It was I was trying to get that information from them. It was a total wash. But as I walk out, a woman comes up behind me. Uh, Tanya is her name. And she'd never met an American. And she wanted to talk. She, this was her shot, right? Here I am. I'm in her institute. I'm about to walk out. And she comes up to me and she just said, let's talk more. And so we walked around. You know, this is 1988, so she's still worried about being followed and listening devices and all that. So we kept moving. And she was, at the time, their leading Zimbabweanist uh, for the Soviet Union. Mm. She'd written the one big book on Zimbabwe. I knew her. I knew her book. Knew of her work. Yeah, yeah. it was at the Hoover Institution. I'd read it. And, um, you know, the essence of it was she finally kind of figured out what I was doing. And she said, all that stuff they told you in there is a bunch of garbage. That's just propaganda. That's really not what we're doing. But when she figured out that I was interested in political change, which is a, a theme of my academic work for the last three decades, she said, forget about Zimbabwe and Angola. Uh, if you're interested in political change, you should be studying the Soviet Union because things here are changing. And that was intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next couple of days, she introduced me to these people that were revolutionaries. There's no better word for them. They believed in... Uh, a two-party system and and the renunciation of the cult of Leninism, and you got to remember in that society at that time to have those beliefs. That's like walking on the street here and running into somebody 
that's promoting Marxism, Leninism as the future for uh, for American uh, for our American political system, right? You got they're fringy, and right. they acted fringy too, by the way. They're they you know they were pretty kooky people, uh, but that is when I I decided she was right, and I kept coming back. Uh, sorry for the long divergence no, there, no. but then I get back. I sign up as a Fulbright scholar to finish my dissertation, but really I want to just, I want to live history because 1990, 91. You sensed that history was coming. Yeah, and I knew uh, that this was going to be a big moment in the history of the 20th century. Uh, I was there with some other graduate students and uh, from Harvard and Chicago, actually somebody from here and, and, and Princeton, you know, all the elite colleges, the, the Fulbright, and we're watching our discipline Dissolve, right? Soviet studies is dying on yeah, the Yeah, you kind of need the Soviet Union for Soviet studies. You do. Yeah. And so different people had different strategies for that. Mine was just to kind of absorb the history and let the chips fall where they may. And that's when I got to know, you know, the people that eventually were part of the group that did bring down the Soviet Union, the democratic movement. Uh, democratic Russia was the movement back then, the kind of the solidarity. Uh, and it was an incredible time. I mean, every other week, 200, 300,000 people on the streets. One, I, I have one of the photos in the book, and I got to know these people. Uh, I later then got to know an American NGO. It's called the National Democratic Institute. Uh, they came to town. Uh, a student of mine had worked for them, and this is pre-email, so she asked them to deliver a letter to me. Uh, and that's how I met them. And they didn't have any staff, and I ended up... Uh, you know, kind of uh, informally advising them. And that gave me a, an even greater excuse to interact with these people. But to your point about Putin knowing it, my last day of that academic year, I went in to see my, uh, you know, advisor, Apollon Davidson was his name. Strange name for a Russian. Uh, but <laughs> uh, he was their leading historian on South Africa. And I said, hey, Apollon, well, I didn't say, hey, Apollon. I said, Professor Davidson, yeah. it's been great to work with you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to come back in the fall because I haven't quite finished my research. And he said, Mike, you're not coming back in the fall. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you know, you came here to work on your dissertation, but you didn't do that. You worked with these Democratic opposition people, and their time is over now. And that means you'll never come back to this country. And it was really sobering. And uh, I went from there to a cab out to the airport with my Russian colleague, uh, who I'd been doing a lot of this work with, by the way, who later, his name's Sergei Markov, he later became a Putin supporter uh, over the years. But I did think that maybe I wasn't going to come back. But that round, my guys won and his guys lost. That was August 1991. There was a coup attempt. He right. was right. right. His people were trying to shut it down, but my team won that time. And so I was back uh, in, the, in the fall of 1991. I want to I pursue this, but I, I missed a, a little bit of biography that is uh, not... It's important at least to explain two things. One is that your impulses were pretty consistent, domestic, and when you were overseas. And the other is that you did have a knack for running into people who would be important down the line. So I want to ask you about the anti-apartheid mm. movement at Stanford. Uh, you, uh, you were a leader of that. Uh, yes. Uh, another 
of them was one Susan Rice. Correct, yes. That's when I first met You Susan. guys raised all kinds of hell uh, back then. We tried. Uh, uh, I think I spoke with her about this. I'm sure I did when she did this podcast and uh, the, the fact that when she graduated her as she I think she said as she got her degree her role was noted to her by the president or whoever handed could the, be. the, uh, the could degree be. Uh, but uh, but you what what drew you into that well it, it was an interesting it, it actually starts in Moscow in 1985 for me uh, because I was there with uh, you know, ANC activists, uh, students uh, from these national liberation movements, the SWAPO movement in Namibia. I, I literally would go to these parties and, and you know, we would all sing the, the, uh, the ANC song and we would sing Free Nelson Mandela. That was just part of the culture there. And by the way, they had a good time. Uh, yeah. they, they all, those were always fun parties to be invited to. And your training at the Ramada Inn probably was helpful there right? when the, <laughs> oh, the events could, turned musical. I could, hold, I could hold my own and I could dance. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, then there's a little side note, which is my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's now my wife, uh, she was heading that summer to Nigeria. Um, and uh, uh, she needed... I created an excuse to follow her there. Uh, you know, I got some grant from Stanford to say I was going to study Soviet-Nigerian relations or something. Uh, but I, I spent the summer of 85 in Africa, the first time to Africa. Um, one of my friends in Moscow, by the way, said his name was Fani. He was the the slickest, coolest guy in all of Moscow, uh, known at all the discotheques, um, uh, you know, dancing to Michael Jackson in these places. The coolest guy ever. Very, very sophisticated guy. Uh, and he said, you know, when you get to Moscow, when you get to Lagos, make sure you look me up. And so I did. And we tried, we eventually connected with him. Uh, only to find out that his father was the general secretary of the Communist Party of Nigeria. <laughs> and so he was very polite to us, but he said, we can't stay with him. Uh, he can't have we- these imperialists uh, stay with him. But that I would just, in that milieu, right, of mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about that stuff. So when I got back to Stanford the next fall, yeah, I got quite involved. Um, and... You know, in a way, uh, that was my first uh, bit of activism about for for democratic political change. And, you know, I've had that impulse with me, including domestically. You know, I think we did some work for yes. for democratic change together uh, uh, later in my career. But I've also had this intellectual interest about it, and in particular, how international influences affect uh, domestic political change. So it starts in South Africa moves to uh, Russia, the, later in the Middle East. Now I, I work on lots of countries. That's probably the theme, and it starts with the anti-apartheid movement. Yeah. It's probably another thing that unsettled Putin, given your history, Yes, because of his deep, deep paranoia it about did. what America's intent was in terms of the Russian domestic Political Without scene. question, by but, the time I get to become ambassador, he's obsessed with that and the, and my background. Um, go back to nineteen ninety one, the dissolution of the Soviet uh, Union, uh, the coup, uh, Yeltsin's ascension. Yeah, this heady moment when when Russia uh, made this transition into uh, this kind of nascent. 
democracy. Yeah. What went wrong? Well, first, let's remember the good times. Um, so uh, those that was uh, 1991 was a tough time economically, right? Because the Soviet economy is collapsing. But there were these demonstrations. And, and by the way, that's when I first met Putin. Uh, Putin was a deputy president. Uh, deputy mayor for international relations for one of the heroes of that time. Anatoly Subchak was his name. And we were coming over as NDI. We brought some members, council, uh, uh, city council people from LA and New York to talk about like, how do you balance a budget for a city? Like, you know, that was kind of the work we were doing. And he was our interlocutor. He was our liaison, right? He and his deputy. Um, his, I got to know his deputy a lot better. And our job back then was chicken or fish, right? Like we're trying to figure out what to have for the banquet for Vice President Biden and all the other dignitaries. Uh, he later becomes the CEO of the largest oil company in Russia. It's called Rosneft, Igor Sechenov. Oh, yes. So being Putin's friend 30 years ago paid, paid off, off him pretty time, well. Yeah. But I, I want to just before we talk about what went wrong, remember what went right. Like yeah. we didn't win the Cold War. And maybe we played a, a role in the margins, but the real winners of the Cold War were these people demanding a democratic society. Yeah. And and Lithuanians and Ukrainians and Georgians too, right? Yes. But without that and without Gorbachev and Yeltsin, there's no end of the Cold War. So those were great days. In fact, I remember very vividly, I was sitting at the Moscow City Council. My friend, and he's still my friend, back to that, Misha Schneider is his name. Uh, he was one of the main campaign guys, just sitting across from you. I'm reminded. They got campaign folks, too. They got their axelrods, and he was one of them. And he was in charge, a part of the inner team for President Yeltsin's first uh, successful uh, election in June 1991 for president. He wins pretty handily, beat, beat six candidates, so there's not a, a, a runoff. And the week before that election... They're going over their numbers, right? They're looking, and he says to me, Mike, well, we got this in hand. This, this is it. We've won. I don't know exactly when, but our side will prevail. The coup took place two months after that, but the coup was defeated because mm -hmm. he had democratic legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Had he not won that election, think of the counterfactual, had he not had that mandate of the people, when he goes to the White House to stand up and say, we are not going to listen to these commands. Right, the White House the in Moscow. The White House in Moscow, where the Russian government was at mm -hmm. the time. The Soviet government was in the Kremlin. The White House was where the Russian government is. And for three days, there's this standoff where Yeltsin is handing out, I am the leader of Russia. I'm the democratically elected leader of Russia. Here are your instructions, tank commanders, right? Because they're sitting there not knowing what to do. And in their headsets, they're getting messages from a bunch of, uh, you know, old Politburo guys. Gorbachev, remember, is, is being held down in Crimea somewhere. Mm -hmm. He's under house arrest. And the people with the, uh, are giving them instructions, they have no legitimacy. And I think that played a crucial role in Yeltsin winning. So that's the good news. The bad news, it's a complicated story. Um, you know, I write about it in the book, but, yes. but to oversimplify, uh, people have to remember it wasn't just a transition from autocracy to democracy. That was one part of it. There was also a transition, uh, transition's even too small a word, transformation from command economy to market economy and from an empire to a brand new state, independent state of Russia. 
And in all of the post-communist world in that period, the moment that democracy becomes the political system coincides with one of the deepest economic depressions they've had since World War II. And the combination of those things together uh, does a lot to undermine, you know, support for the, the, the Democrats. And they're, remember, they're calling themselves, we are the Democrats. And so for your common person, the Democrats are the ones that are presiding over this economic chaos. And uh, looking back uh, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, what could the West have done differently? Uh, and was there some uh, uh, un untoward, unnecessary triumphalism. Because remember, the falling of the wall was, it was a huge uh, event in America as well. And there was a great deal of celebration. And there was this sense that uh, the West had triumphed, communism. We had won the Cold War, yes. Yes. Well, like I say, Russians and Ukrainians together with us, and I would add, you know, uh, people throughout the the former Warsaw Pact, we won it together. But I do think, I mean, it's hard to run the, you know, I run the counterfactuals in the book from time to time as a method to tell the story. Uh, But I do, I was, I moved back to Russia in the summer of 1992 to open the NDI office because we were invited to come there. Mm -hmm. And that's when we started handing out leaflets about how to win elections. Mm -hmm. We used the Republican handbook, by the way. We translated that into Russian, not the Democratic one for reasons I don't know. But we literally translated their, their materials and handed it out. But I do think we made a mistake. I mean, a couple of things I would say. One, we didn't understand how hard it was going to be. Remember, this is the end of history. Everybody's going to be a democracy, right? Fukuyama wrote his piece, Mm -hmm. End of History, at the time, my colleague at Stanford. Um, It's going to be rocky, but there's no alternative. That was the idea of the time. That's that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, there was no threat to the east of Russia to animate us to do more for them. So after World War II, there was a threat to the East, to Germany and, and Japan, called the Soviet Union. So that's why we have a Marshall Plan, because we're worried about those guys coming in. Uh, we should have had a Marshall Plan-like structure uh, put in place, in my view, but we didn't, because there was no threat looming out there. Had the Chinese been bigger and more threatening, maybe we would have done that. And then third, there's these things called presidential elections that you know more about than I do. But the year 1992 uh, coincided with that first year of Russian independence. And, you know, one candidate was saying it's the economy, stupid, uh, and saying that George H.W. Bush was spending too much time on this foreign policy stuff. He later comes, changes his his view, uh, President Clinton but by when he becomes president, but by the time he becomes president, my my friends are already thrown out of the government. Like the moment for deep economic reform was missed, and so that I think also played a role. One other piece on that I remember from those debates, they some of us argued, and I most certainly was in this camp, that we needed to take some of the edge off of this economic depression and have a social safety net for Russians enduring this. And the political argument back, you know, was how can we build a social safety net for Russians when we don't have it for Americans? Mm -hmm. And that really constrained the amount of resources we were gonna spend on their transition. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, the spirit of the Marshall Plan uh, also matched the resolve 
and the ability of the U.S. to undertake it. Uh, and that just wasn't there. Wasn't there. And the Bush administration was not paying attention either, right? They remember the Secretary of State then becomes the campaign advisor. There's no, there's no Jim Baker. There's no critical mass of people focused on this issue. Now, they would, if they were here, they would say, oh, had we given them more money, it would all have gone down and, uh, you know, the train and it wouldn't have been uh, effective. But I have a different view. I think we missed a big opportunity there. You played a role, uh, uh, informal, but as a, a, a periodic advisor to the second Bush administration, uh, in part because your view of, of activism behind human rights and so on comported with the views of some of the foreign policy, the neocon yeah. advisors uh, to Bush. And so you briefed uh Correct me if I'm wrong, but you briefed the president, the vice president. Yes. Uh, now you you you're back at Stanford, but you're you're doing this uh, doing this work. Um, what you know, President Bush famously yeah looked into Putin's eyes, right. said he saw his soul, yeah, and uh, paid a big price for that. Yeah. What was going on back yeah. then that caused him to do that? Yeah, so uh, I saw him maybe two weeks before he said that. Uh, it was a meeting uh, in the residence, by the way. So uh, just these little details are interesting, right? It was just five of us. Um, Condi arranged it. Uh, and Condoleezza I was, Rice, who was a, yeah. co a colleague, intermittently right. a colleague of yours and is today at, yeah. at Stanford. And an old friend of mine. So mm -hmm. that's definitely... She was National Security Advisor at, at the, the time. At the time, right. Uh, I remember we first met in the Roosevelt Room, which you know well, and mm -hmm. uh, got our little briefing about how it was going to go down. And then we went over to the map room and waited for the president. And I remember he at the meeting was scheduled to start at 1.20, and he walked in right at 1.20. And um, known uh, for that, he's known way. for that, and he made that was striking to me. Um, then he gave us a little tour of the residence. By the way, that was interesting. I'd never seen any of those rooms before, and made some jokes about various rooms and how they used the Lincoln bedroom differently, and the Queen room that his mom likes to say. And he's, so he's a very jovial guy. We talked about baseball. He knew more about Stanford baseball than I did. Mm -hmm. And and then we settled down. Uh, it's I think you would know better i think it's called the the yellow oval room yeah, up, uh -huh. upstairs yep. and so it was five of us outsiders and him the vice president uh, condi other you know they're they're a big team because this is this is his first trip abroad so we spent the first hour on europe we pivoted to russia and uh you know we had a pretty engaging argument about how to deal with russia the essence of which was we had a big debate back then whether Russia is powerful or not, right? That was what we were bantering about. And I said to the president, uh, that's the wrong question. It, it doesn't matter. It, uh, the real question is whether they're inside our tent or out. If they're inside our tent, we might want them to be powerful, by the way, if they were mm -hmm. our ally, our democratic ally. Right. Um, and if they're outside, then even a weak Russia can be a, a, a real problem for us. It yes. can be a spoiler for us. And he said to me, you're absolutely right, Mike. I remember him saying that. Um, uh, and then he said, because we we're going to have to deal with the Chinese at some point. And then I couldn't tell, did he accept my argument or was he really just thinking in more balance of power political terms? Um, 
But it was clear to me at that meeting that he wanted Putin to feel comfortable in their first meeting. And I'm, I'm reminded of that given what our current president says these days about Putin. But the reason was that he was going to pull out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Hmm. And so he was, trying to, he was going to try to lessen the blow. So I don't think that quip was a mistake. The mm-hmm. actual words were a mistake, probably. That was too much. But his strategy was, I'm going to make him feel comfortable. I'm a business guy. So he doesn't guy. feel threatened by so the he doesn't withdrawal feel threatened. Um, and just to coda to that all, uh, the next day, I was quoted in the New York Times saying that was a rookie mistake. That was on page one of the New York Times. Uh, I never briefed the president again. Yes, uh, I, I did meet, brief not. the vice president. I did see uh, Condoleezza Rice and everybody else, but... That was, uh, you're not allowed to say so, that. So it turned out to be your rookie mistake. I, I guess so. I a guess that's uh, true. You, you know, <laughs> he, he also made a decision that you say, above all other decisions, has impacted on uh, U.S.-Russian uh, relations. And I don't think it's one that people would, uh, you know, people who don't read your book and are, who are uh, not scholars of all this would necessarily point to right away. And that was the decision to invade Iraq. Yes. Huge, huge moment. So there were moments, and I, we won't go through them all, where, uh, well, let's let's start in the good news for Bush. His reset, right? We have our reset, but his reset with Putin was September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. And that because day, Putin had his own fears about Islamic terrorism. He did, and he even wrote uh, eerily uh, an op-ed in the New York Times months before warning what might happen if we're attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that day, he tried to call the president. He got Condi on the phone, so I don't think he got through to the president. But but basically, he said, we're in the common fight here. We have these common enemies. And for the first months of that, he was helping us, particularly in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. He knew the Northern Alliance better than we did, so... When uh, he helped with that, he helped set up bases in Central Asia for us. And he thought that we were in a different place. And then there was a series of events, you know, NATO expansion, color revolutions. But the Iraq war was definitely one of them where he just felt betrayed by President Bush. And 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 the the where I heard this most vividly was actually on a trip you and I were on together in July 2009 yes. when we went to Moscow with President Obama and in his meeting, you know, out at Putin's house, um, uh, it was a, har- a harangue, yeah. is, is how you yeah. describe it, yeah. how the president described it to me. Yeah, when how did he, he describe it to you? Let's triangulate. Well, he said, I said, how was the conversation? He said, well, conversation isn't exactly how the first hour of it, uh, it was a 57-minute Good. speech on the indignities that were heaped on Well, I'm glad he remembered Russia the same by way the I, West. Uh, well, he had just come from it. Let me just say yeah, parenthetically, yeah. I was the beneficiary of that harangue because he was scheduled to meet with Gorbachev. Yes. And that meeting so was... You met with so Gorbachev. they said, you've got you to go and meet with Gorbachev because the president's tied up That's right. I remember Putin. that. Yeah, we yeah. should point out Putin was the prime minister at the time. Right. So he wasn't, you know, he was not the, the, the head of... Right. Uh, but we were really late because, mm-hmm. uh, well, just another. Fo- so I'm glad our stories because yeah. I write about that in the book. I did. I had, I, you know, I wrote this book without talking to too many of our former colleagues because I didn't want them to take the edge off of what I wanted to say. And um, 
Syria, I, there were some that were sensitive. I wanted to make sure, at least to make sure I was representing the president's uh, viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's what happened. And just let me, another story about that. So I'm brand new to the government, just like you, by the way, uh, only six months in. This is my, I'm in charge of this summit, right? I'm the Russia guy at the NSC, yeah. scared to death. My first ride on Air Force One was horrible because I didn't sleep a minute. It's an 11-hour flight because I'm worried about 4,000 details and all the things that we did, including the civil society things that we did that you helped me with, my friend, Mm -hmm. to keep on the calendar. That was very important. Uh, But we get out to this meeting. I slept like a baby by the by the way because I knew (laughs) that you had the whole thing covered. Glad glad to have provided that for you. But I on the ca- on the schedule it said this meeting is to last for an hour, yes. and my job after it was over, I was going to be the SAO that day, the senior administration official that was going to read out the meeting to the the the, uh, the White House press corps, and we're fifty five minutes in and our guy hasn't said a word, <laughs> and I'm thinking what am I going to tell? You know these people, yes, yes. you know what they would have done. Uh, luckily, Putin went on for three more hours, I think. Or, well, the, well, we both, the, then the president, you know, they went back and forth. But yeah. he did, he was loaded for bear, and that was the moment. I'll tell you one thing that I remember him telling me, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was something like Putin said to him, sort of uh, coldly, you're an educated man, I'm just an old security yep. apparatchik. He did say that. Yeah. And he played off of that. Yeah. Um, but there was like a pointed message to that which is like i know i i know things you don't know that was true and yeah. he intimated that in the meeting yeah he he's very good at this i've seen him now up close in these kind of meetings he 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 floats out these little details that just give you a sense that you're dealing with a guy with all this secret information but on iraq i just one important point because i write about it in the book they got to that point in the conversation by the way, Putin kind of left President Bush off to the side. He he likes President Bush. It was the deep state. It was mm-hmm. the President Bush administration. He was going off after them, and that's the way he thinks. Mm-hmm. To this day, that's the way he thinks. Uh, got, got something in common with uh, our current president, exactly. Um, and I think they're tr- doing the same with Trump. By the way, mm-hmm. don't criticize Trump, but the deep state we got to go after. But when they get to Iraq. And President Obama said, you know, he told us about how horrible Iraq was and what a stupid mistake it was. President Obama said, I agree. And that was that was a little jarring for Putin. He'd never heard an American say that. If you think about who he'd been and, dealing and, with. And Obama said that with the authority of someone who had opposed the war and from the said, beginning. And he said, he said, you may not remember or may not know, but I was, I was against that war long before it was popular to be against it. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where I thought Putin was kind of you know, listening to Obama and thinking, well, maybe this guy is different. Maybe things will be a different trajectory. Now, we should point out, he was the prime minister. Yes. Uh, Medvedev was the president. Yes, let's not forget about poor Medvedev. Right. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of scorn now for the, the so-called reset, in part because there was this gimmicky deal where Hillary Clinton gave, I guess, Lavrov, their foreign minister, yes. a reset yeah. uh, button. But the truth of the matter is that Obama and Medvedev had a very productive relationship and a lot of business was done in those two years. Yes. That's why the book's so long. Because, yeah. uh, uh, yes, you're right. So he, it's a, not long, it's a good read, though, we should point out. It's a good read. Yes. And, and there's a lot of footnotes because I'm an academic. So don't, don't, be <laughs> don't, be daunted. By, don't be frightened by that 500 page mark. <laughs> um, yeah, and we did. 
Uh, and by the way, I'm very proud of that record. Like, let's yeah. not forget that. We got... Uh, well, the, the Iran, Iran sanctions. We got Iran sanctions. Cooperation on Afghanistan. Major cooperation on Afghanistan. The, the New START Treaty. New START Treaty. Rush into the WTO. And, and all of these things, I want to point out, they're not just kind of marginal, namby-pamby uh, photo ops about let's hold hands and sing kumbaya. We're talking about core national security interests for the United States at the time. Uh, Afghanistan, just a minute on that. People don't understand how important that was. Uh, when we came into the White House, over 90% of our supplies to Afghanistan went through Pakistan. We had plans to occasionally Confirm. violate the sovereignty of right, that country right, right. to go after terrorists. You can't do that if you have 90% of your supplies going through there. So the right. NDN, it was called, Northern Distribution Network, uh, we developed that, and American soldiers were flying through uh, Russian airspace, and that was important for the day that we killed Osama bin Laden. In fact, the day before we killed Osama bin Laden, I was in the Oval Office with the president. He called Nazarbayev from Kazakhstan to do one more enhancement to the Northern Distribution Network because we, you know, something so, big was going to happen the right. next day. We were worried that the Pakistanis might close off those routes. I, I need to push forward yeah. here because there's so much to talk about and we've got a, just a little time to do it. Um, you became ambassador. Yes. Uh, and you became ambassador at a, a particularly, it turned out, freighted time because three months after you became ambassador Putin resumed as president yes. of Russia and Great that timing, was a, huh? a sea change yeah uh, explain that and how it impacted you yeah as the incoming ambassador well, well first of all uh, I want to remind your listeners that the decision to send me to Moscow that conversation starts with the president and and Tom Donilon if you remember yeah, of national, course you remember security Tom, advisor, national security advisor national security advisor Dennis McDonough, that's like February, March 2011, because I'm a professor. Mm -hmm. Most professors spend two years and the government have to go home. And oftentimes you have to go home mm -hmm. to keep your tenure and your job. And that was always our plan. And, you know, my family was ready to go back. They hadn't seen me a lot, you know, those years working at the White House. And those, when I told Tom first, he's like, that's a horrible idea. Uh, we're doing so much history here. We're we're moving in the right direction. And then he said, "Hey, I talked to the boss, and he also thinks that's a really bad idea." And so that's when this idea of going to Moscow, staying on the team but working Russia—that's when that happened at the height of cooperation with Russia. That's when we just got Medvedev to sign off on our military operation in Libya. That's how cooperative things were. By the time I get there. Deciding, going through the review process internally, uh, then going through the Senate confirmation things, because I'm in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I remember Senator Kirk uh, had one of his holds on me, um, and it was nothing personal, He, but he had a lot of stuff personal against the president. So we spent some very quality time in the Marriott Executive on Friendship Heights, uh, waiting to get out of purgatory there. <laughs> um, uh, but by the time I got there, two big things had changed. As you just said, one of them, Putin was now running for president, and two months later he becomes president, he wins that election, but two massive demonstrations in the streets of Russia, uh, sparked by a falsified election in December 2011. And, um, you know, we had nothing to do with that, uh, but that wasn't Putin's view. Mm -hmm. He blamed us for it. He blamed Obama. 
He blamed Clinton. She made a, a statement back then that he signaled out that he said that was a call to the opposition to come out and, and demonstrate. And when I got there, then they how much by me. the how much how much was that? Do you think an impetus for the Russian incursion into the 2016 presidential race? I have no doubt that those things are related. He thought that we were interfering in his election, so when he had the chance for payback, he took it, mm-hmm. particularly against her, because mm-hmm. that I remember that statement. Right, I was the guy who cleared it at the White House. You know, as we're going through, and there they. Their entourage were off in Lithuania or somewhere, and Jake sent it to me, Jake Sullivan, his advi- her advisor for foreign policy at the time. It was a Saturday. I remember my son played football at the time in, in Maryland, and I'm like looking for a quiet place to talk to them. The wind's blowing, and I read this thing, and it seemed pretty innocuous to me, right? Like, but not no big to him. Deal. Not to Putin. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of my days as ambassador... Uh, that was my fate. I was portrayed on television in a pretty regular basis as being sent by Barack Obama to foment revolution against Putin. Well, and you you may have contributed to that in, in, in the sense that the, one of the first things that you did when you became ambassador was that you and Bill Burns, who was the deputy secretary of state, convened a meeting of democracy uh, of advocates and and civil society advocates, right. including Navalny, particularly uh, he didn't come, but he was invited. He didn't oh, come. I see. But but yeah. It, so this this was probably given the environment uh, taken as a very strong and negative signal by yes. Putin, right? Um, well, as you was that a mistake? Do you think? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, You'll remember, because you were there, because I have the photos to prove it, we had a similar meeting. In 2009. With 2009, with very similar people, m- yeah. many of the same people that were with, at. With, but that was with the president. That was with the president. President of the United States. Yes. You'd think that would be a bigger that, deal. You would think that. But it was a different context. Right. That's your point. Yeah. And at the reset policy, one of the planks of it was dual track engagement. So anytime I, I, you know, I traveled when I was at the White House with the vice president, with Secretary Clinton, Bill Burns, uh, we would always see civil society. That was our policy. What had changed was those demonstrations. And uh, the meeting, by the way, was Bill Burns's meeting. I'm, I'm the potted plant. That's what Clinton used to call it, where you put your hands over each other and you just sit there and say nothing because... The principal for that meeting is Bill Burns, uh, right? She hated, uh, hate's a strong word. She never liked traveling with President Obama because that meant she would sit as a right. potted plant, right? And not to be the principal. Um, but the context was different. I, and I remember I had just gotten there. My one contribution to the list was let's invite a communist. Uh, uh, Sergei Kalashnikov is his name. And he came just to make it not look like it was such an opposition thing. But, you know, at the time it felt maybe too edgy. We probably shouldn't have done it. But even before that meeting, David, they were already running these hit pieces on me and us. So if it wouldn't have been that meeting, there would have been something else. And, and pretty much they made your life miserable uh, during that, during your tour of duty there. You, uh, and- well, yes and no. So all that stuff was horrible. The day they somebody floated a video accusing me of a pedophile, that's a bad day. Uh, by anybody's you, definition. By anybody's definition. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with it? So 
I actually have some friends at Google. I, I got it t- taken down from YouTube, but then it appeared on other platforms the next day. So what do you do? You get on Twitter and say, I'm not a pedophile? Right. How do you deal I'd with this information? That, yeah, yeah I, I could have used your advice. <laughs> you should have called. <laughs> but so that stuff was not pleasant. And mm-hmm. the big politics was not pleasant. We were moving in a negative direction. Mm-hmm. Putin wanted us as an enemy, and there's nothing we could do. For his about own it. domestic political. To- completely. Completely. Yeah. And his one of his campaign advisors, he told me very bluntly, you, you all, your, your, your business has a reputation of being a little bit cynical about these things. And most certainly that crowd who I've known for 30 years in Russia, they're pretty cynical people. And he said to me, uh, his name was Surkov, is Surkov. He said to me, I went to see him. He said, Mike, you are manna from heaven for the campaign. Mm-hmm. You're the poster child. You look like an American. And you, all the things we were just talking about earlier, David... That's part of my history, right? So mm-hmm. I was there when these demonstrations were happening in 1991, right. 20 years earlier, the year the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah, they so thought you were just coming back to, they to accused finish, you of coming back to finish the job. Literally, that's Let what Let me they ask said. you a question. In two th- I remember very much pre- uh, helping uh, prepare the president for debates in 2012. Yeah. And one of the things that happened was his exchange with Mitt Romney, yes. where Romney called Russia the biggest challenge that we faced and president obama was scornful of him and and in being scornful of him he was also scornful of russia would, would did that have any impact on their were they did they take umbrage at at that depiction of them as a he, i think he called them a you know a regional, regional power, power yeah. you know putin didn't definitely didn't like that phrase regional power but I think there were bigger things at play. I mm-hmm. think, you know, fundamentally, the, the, the end of the reset was massive demonstrations, first in the Arab Spring. Yes, where, which he thought we were responsible exactly. for. Exactly. So it, there's, a, there's a pattern. Arab Spring, we're responding, you know, we're reacting. He thinks we're behind it. Happens in Russia. He thinks we're behind it. And then happens in Ukraine again, November 2013, February 2014. His guy gets swept away. Mm -hmm. He thinks we're behind it. And I think that disagreement was the conflict. Mm -hmm. But I want to make sure before we end, that's the high politics. Uh, Being ambassador, being the U.S. ambassador to Russia was the greatest job I've ever had. It was awesome. Uh, One, because... Like the honor of representing our country there. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I, we had this, we had this fight one time with my bodyguards. All the stuff is happening. I had some death threats against me, and they're like, "Well, Mr. Ambassador, we think we should take the flag down from your your car so that we could travel a little bit more quietly around town." And I'm looking at him, Sergey is his name, and I'm like, "You got to be kidding me, man! We're giant, this giant black Cadillac with these two big <laughs> Suburbans. You don't think they know who we are? We're putting the flag out, and we're gonna drive yeah. around town. Um, but, but you know, the people don't understand the job. Like my job was to, to, to host Herbie Hancock at my house and have mm-hmm. 500 of my friends come to a concert. And my house is big enough yeah. to have 500 uh, people there." Uh, I hosted the NBA one day. My kids love that. You know, mm-hmm. twenty. If we had twelve NBA stars, uh, those parts of the job, even yeah. when the other stuff was negative, that stuff was great. I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask about where we are now. Um, first of all, uh, how do you assess this whole issue of Trump's relationship with the Russians, and and how? How do you you look at it through the lens of your own experience and 
and how you believe they operate. Yes. Uh, and so how seriously do you take this notion that they've compromised him? Yeah. Well, let me tell you precisely what I, I know. Second, what I kind of know because I know they're, uh, how they operate and then what I don't know. And I want to make sure we're clear on, on those things because I think sometimes we get ahead of our skis. So did Putin want Trump to win? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Trump said things that, that Putin wanted it, it changed in foreign policy. He said he's going to lift sanctions, look into recognizing Crimea, blow up NATO, and he didn't say anything about democracy and human rights. Mm-hmm. Secretary Clinton said exactly the opposite. It's very rational that Putin would want him to win. Second, did Putin take actions to help him win? Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stole data from the DNC and Podesta, and he got it published in ways to help Trump. Uh, that's clear. He used his propaganda uh, platforms uh, to help Trump and to hurt Clinton. That's absolutely clear. When you when you tweet hashtag crooked Hillary on the Sputnik uh, uh, Twitter feed, pretty clear. But who, everything where your you just said are. could all be explained by what you by your predicate, which is she had done things that enraged right. him. He's, Trump was saying things that he right. that he liked. None of that would be. But then we get into the gray zones. Mm-hmm. Did they uh, make contact with the campaign to try to provide additional information that might help them? The answer to that is also yes. Uh, Natalia Veselnitska, who I've never met before, but I know that system well. Uh, that meeting does not take place in the Putin's Russia without it being closely coordinated at the highest levels. So that happened. That is a fact. Then there's another piece. Now we're in where I know how Russia operates. I don't know if they use these techniques with the United States. But two more things that they do. Uh, One, uh, they gather compromise on everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Ritz-Carlton, uh, you and I stayed there with the president. I don't know if you remember. Yes, you do remember because you were in it. Because I remember, there's a photo that Pete Souza took. We built this yeah. submarine-like structure inside one of the suites so that we could have a confidential conversation with yeah. the president. And you're standing with your head down because it's it's yeah, pretty it's compact cramped. in there. Yeah. Um, that's what we did, and we did it rightly so because anything you do in that hotel mm-hmm. is uh, monitored. Anything I did in Spasso House was recorded. Emails, phone calls, movements, everything is monitored. They have tremendous capacity. What they picked up, I don't know. Were they gathering compromise on everybody that they can who are Americans? Absolutely, yes. What about this notion of money laundering? And then that was the last one I was going to get to. So what they do, what the Kremlin does, is they... Uh, they create leverage with all kinds of people inside Russia. That's the story I know best, right? Uh, but they do it in other European countries where they say, you know, uh, let me give you a good deal. And you say, well, what, are you ne- what do I need to give you back in return? And you say, oh, we'll, we'll, work it. We'll, we'll work that out later down the road. Putin does that all the time. Uh, one of the things he did when I was ambassador, he declared that all government officials had to divest their assets abroad. And some of them have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, invested abroad. So that's the official rule. But every individual he can talk to and say, okay, for you, Volodya, 
I'm going to cut you a special deal, mm-hmm. but that means you're beholden to him. Mm-hmm. That is a very familiar tactic of Putin's Russia. And the question is, is that what they so did? So the, the, with- the, the, the influx of Russian money into Trump's condos, the purchase of a home at $40 million more than it was listed for without an inspection by a, a Russian oligarch, these are objects of suspicion. Those are consistent with the pattern of creating influence that I've seen before. And then uh, finally, Mike, uh, where do you see Russia now? And where do you think things are moving? Uh, uh, People you and I both know have said that you know, when you strip, lay the thing bare, the economy is is in terrible shape. Yeah, Uh, they're actually mired in Syria now, uh, Crimea, uh, and 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 eastern Ukraine. And you know, while the exhilaration of the beginnings of that were good politically, they they be rally around the kind of a quagmire. Right. Uh, So. how is Putin sitting right now, and what does the future look like to you? Well, I'm I'm pessimistic in the short run, incredibly optimistic in the long run. So in the short run, Putinism as a political system, I think, is pretty sophisticated. Um, it's not a crude dictatorship. It, it works effectively, and he's squashed the opposition. He's crushed them, including friends of mine mm-hmm. who've been squashed, who are in exile as a result of that. And some of my friends have been killed. Mm-hmm. Boris Nemtsov was yes. a good friend of mine, killed in 2015. Um, I uh, don't see a scenario under which, while Putin is there, uh, that system falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it might be because I used to work on Southern Africa. I used to work on Zimbabwe and Angola, two places that, that performed miserably for decades and, and yet dictators men. Yeah. held on for a long time. So just because you see negative economic trends doesn't mean the dictatorship falls. But 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 two thing, three things we know, and I want to maybe a good place to end. Uh, let me talk as a political scientist and also anecdotally as an ambassador. So One thing political scientists we know is that charismatic dictators or autocrats, uh, their regimes do not last as long as, say, one-party systems. And Putin is most certainly that. And so I think after him, that system falls apart pretty quickly. Number two, what we know from social science is something called modernization theory. And the more well-to-do a society, the more educated a society, more urban it is, the more likely it is to push for democratic change. And that's a trend you see around the world for 200 years. I don't see Russia uh, being somehow so unique that those pressures don't reemerge as they did at the mm. end of the 80s. Mm. I, I think that's going to happen there. Russia is a European country, and, and I, that is going to happen in my view. Uh, but then an anecdote, and it's related. Um, um, you know, one of the great things about being ambassador is you're required to go to various businesses and meet, you know, Russians. And there was a, a very important demonstration, uh, May 6, 2012. Uh, some people got arrested, and some of them are still in to jail to this day. Um, there was some violence. And I was at one of these, you know, high-tech companies. Um, by the way, it looked exactly like Silicon Valley. They're all mm-hmm. sitting on their big pillows and free food and all that stuff. And I said, how many of you are at that demonstration? And everybody's hand went up. They were all there. And then there was another one being planned. And I asked, well, how many are planning to go? And just a few hands went up. And 
I must have been reading it on my face because uh, uh, a woman uh, interrupted and said, you know, Mr. Ambassador, don't misread what you just saw. I'm an engineer. I got two children. I'm the breadwinner in my family. Uh, I can't afford to be arrested because they got arrested and we're in jail after May 6th. But she said, don't think for a minute that my preferences about this regime have changed. Mm-hmm. So I got to keep my head down now. But, but the hundreds of thousands of people that were out there for May 6th, uh, their preferences haven't changed. And we're bad at predicting the future. By the way, so is the intelligence community at predicting political change. So political scientists aren't uh, bad. But uh, in the not long to run, pundits. not to mention pundits, in the long run, I think change will happen. Uh, and I think it'll be in a more pro-Western democratic way. I just don't know when that long run begins. From Cold War to Hot Peace, Mike McFall, always great to see you and great to have you at the Institute of Politics. Thanks for having me. It was a great, great conversation. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.